be seconds and then get started. All right. Well, welcome everyone to another Claremont Institute virtual briefing. I'm the president of the Claremont Institute, Ryan Williams, and your host, publisher also of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. Uh, very happy to have here today uh, Richard Hanania. We're going to be discussing his book, The Origins of Woke, Civil Rights Law, Corporate America, and the Triumph of Identity Politics. Richard also um, started a small think tank that does some very interesting work, which I wanted to direct you all to called the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, uh, using some of the tools of social science, which Richard knows well, to um, take up some um, countercultural questions and, and offer some insight that you won't find in academia or even across a lot of the think tank world. And uh, you can also follow Richard at richardhanania.com on his Substack. So Richard, thanks for joining us. I thought we would um, just kick things off by Maybe if you just want to talk briefly about why you wrote the book, what you hope to accomplish with it, and then we can have a conversation about it and field some questions. Yeah, well, great. glad to be here, Ryan. I'm glad to be doing this with you guys. Uh, the Claremont audience is exactly who I who I want to reach with this book. Um, you guys are in position potentially to do something useful with with the information in it. Um, and so. I, uh, I went to law school uh, between 2010 and 2013, and there was a, a wokeness sort of in the modern sense. You know, there was something crazy, obviously, what hap happened in years after that. Um, but just I saw sort of proto-wokeness. I, I saw, um, you know, disparate impact is not a new concept. This idea that institutions are racist, the affirmative action, obviously, these are very old debates. And... I learned some things about the law while I was in law school. I did a uh, internship um, first year of law school at a place called uh, Center for Ind Individual Rights. It's a conservative um, uh, nonprofit in Washington D.C. And I was I learned a bit about the law, and I was pretty I was pretty surprised by what I found. I mean, and this was before sort of Kendiism had taken over all institutions. Um, you know, I found that basically institutions were discriminating up and down uh, based on race, based on sex. Um, the the jurisprudence in this area didn't make any sense. You could take race into consideration, but it could never be a factor that determines whether anyone gets a job, which is like impossible, right? It, it just, it's just uh, logically inconsistent. Uh, there was the, the disparate impact doctrine, basically, if you um, have a, a hiring criteria or some other aspect of a job where one group does better than the other, men and women or blacks and whites or what have you, um, that basically the burden of proof becomes on you as a business or as an institution uh, to prove that you're not discriminating. So this stuff was there. I started learning about this stuff in uh, 2010 to 2013 or so. And I've always told people like somebody should do something about this, right? Somebody should, there should be, uh, there should be lawfare on this stuff. There should be executive orders. I found out that I found out at the time that executive order 11246 affirmative action in corporate America was created by a Johnson executive order. Um, I tried to tell people, like, you know, that's an executive order. You could repeal that executive order. You could uh, uh, modify it. Um, but, you know, I was, anyways, I went away. I went to 
I went to grad school. Um, and then sort of uh, the Great Awakening came, these things blew up, became more culturally prominent. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I need to dust off some of this old, these old ideas because people don't really know how much of this stuff is really baked into the law. And so I started doing deeper research um, into what happened. I looked at the, some of the sociology studies of like what happened to institutions, what happened to corporations uh, after civil rights law, uh, after the government started pressuring them to keep tabs on which groups they were hiring and which groups they were promoting and, and all this. Um, and yeah, there, it was just, it was just everywhere. I mean, it, it was, it was sort of, you know, the question became what took, what took so long for the culture uh, to, to, to get the, to this place uh, because government has been forcing institutions to be conscious of race and sex for, since the night, since the late 1960s, the early 1970s. And it's basically been forcing quotas or soft quotas onto them. And occasionally they fought back. Um, occasionally they've gone along with it, uh, but eventually, you know, the government wears them down. Even like in the 1980s, the Supreme court uh, pushed back a little bit on it and a bipartisan consensus in Congress overruled them and, and, and brought civil rights uh, law back to what it had been uh, before. Um, and so I, I wanted to make the case that um, a lot of the, there is, you, you know, people are concerned about wokeness, this idea that disparities are caused by discrimination, white supremacy is everywhere. I wanted to uh, tell people that there is actually a policy basis for a lot of these things. You can actually trace uh, how institutions were changed over time. And there is potentially something that people in the policy space can do about it. And so that's what the book is about. It's a how it's a history and it's also an explainer and a kind of how-to guide going forward yeah let's we've taken up this topic before uh on in different aspects of it i've certainly mentioned chris caldwell's book uh, on some of these virtual briefings before and the general revolution in civil rights law but if you could maybe just walk us through a little bit of the history because everyone i mean well maybe everyone doesn't know but a big inflection point of course is the 1964 civil rights act which was passed to finally do away with Jim Crow and its various vestiges across the South and, and even some other places. Um, and it, it ex explicit sort of letter of the law of the 64 Act, it bans discrimination but doesn't define it. Uh, and it also seems to, on its face, uh, ban any sort of discrimination. So you would think that would have precluded affirmative action and all these racialized policies. But quickly right after it that was not the case so how did this all happen how did we get here yeah there's there's a few inflection points after the civil rights act and your your summary of what people thought they were getting with the civil rights act and what it says is, is correct um there was an executive order by johnson as, as i've already mentioned um that said and this term wasn't defined at the time that uh, companies that are government contracts contractors um, will take, um, must take affirmative action to make sure they're not discriminating. Now that sort of sat dormant for a few years until really the Nixon administration, um, at which point they said, give us your timetables and quotas. Everyone who wanted a government contract had to show that they were counting their employees by race and sex and promoting the right kinds of people and potentially having a plan. So they all became sort of race conscious. These are government contract. And that's a huge part of the uh, the economy. That's like 20 or 30% of the economy now, because if you're like Walmart, you have one government contract, then Walmart has to have an affirmative action program uh, for every store in the country and like every office and everything. I mean, it's really, really expensive. Um, and so there, that's one thing. I mean, this is just taking on a lot of the uh, uh, private sector. You also have a, a Nixon uh, executive order that brings affirmative action to the federal government. Um, um, this is around the same time. 
And then you have, um, so that's one thing, that's affirmative, that's affirmative action being forced on institutions. Um, you also have the disparate impact doctrine. So a lot of people will know the 1971 decision of, of Griggs. It, nobody thought that the Civil Rights Act said this, that basically if you give an IQ test, but it could be really any kind of test or any kind of measure of uh, ability or whatever, um, that if one group doesn't do as well as the other, the business has to show that it's business. there's a business necessity, burden of proof shifts on them. Even the EEOC really didn't want to um, uh, appeal this to the Supreme Court because they thought they would they, they, they thought they would lose they thought it was so plain um, even there's even a uh, uh, there's something called the Tower Amendment in the Civil Rights Act which even <laughs> even says tests are okay basically um, and it was a it was, the Griggs was a unanimous decision in the Supreme Court I mean the Supreme Court was pretty crazy back then the, the courts were doing a lot of crazy things were busing. I mean, the, the the they really just threw the law out the window uh, for that you know fifteen twenty year period between Warren and Burger Burger courts. Uh, so that's how you got uh, you got disparate impact. Um, you know, there's other things too. You can trace it. You know, 1991 there was a civil rights act. There was another civil rights act. Uh, this one created punitive damages. Um, so you, not even just like you, uh, uh, you you do something uh, wrong, you pay them back for their back pay for whatever they were screwing against. Now you have to pay money on top of that. The civil, the sexual harassment. This also made sexual harassment uh, uh, cases easier. That uh, those went up. You could see the number of lawsuits just go through the roof in the uh, early 1990s. Uh, this is you know like the first political. I think. A lot of people consider the first political correctness wave, the late 1980s, early 1990s. It coincided with some uh, new civil rights laws being passed. Uh, a lot of people who are uh, listening uh, will know about uh, Title VI. Um, Title IX, uh, they'll know about basically how the government uses funding of universities uh, to force them to be race conscious. Um, the Title VI was actually in the relied on in the last uh, Supreme Court case, SFFA, uh, along with the 14th Amendment to do away with racial preferences. But at the time, it was first used as an excuse to force racial preferences onto institutions. Um, so in, uh, um, you have you know very early on, the government goes to um, Columbia and they go to Berkeley and they, they don't want to do this the universities don't want to do this at first the universities uh the the president of columbia writes an open letter and says we don't even collect that data we're going to have to become a completely different kind of institution because basically you know every department is sort of autonomous we don't ask them to like fill out forums about who they're hiring and, and then send them to us based on race uh but then eventually he gives up he says okay we, we're columbia university we were a, we're an institution that relies on federal federal grants um and so this is what we're going to have to do i mean this is the next this is the nixon administration which is just it's just incredible uh when you think about it you think about how there just wasn't a conservative movement really paying attention to any of this stuff. And to the extent that Nixon knew what was going on from the history is not even clear. It doesn't seem like he he knew a lot about the about a lot of the stuff. And there was no obviously right wing press uh, covering what's going on. I mean, it got, it got some coverage in the left wing press, um, and even some even some hostile coverage, um, even some skeptical coverage in, in the major papers. Uh, yeah, but this this stuff went on, and so you could in each one of these cases you could sort of see um, you know I have statistics in the book. You could look at the number of HR professionals uh, are people working at HR in the um, uh, in the uh, national workforce, and it's going through the roof, starting with the Civil Rights Act. You could look at the number of um, uh, the percentage of federal cases that are civil rights cases. I mean, it's like 10, 20 percent of federal uh, civil cases are civil rights cases. I mean, this is like 20 uh, percent of what, what the federal government does with its court, making sure people don't discriminate against other people that are, you know, are being nice to each other and are not, uh, um, you know, giving each other tests that they that the one group does better than another. I mean, it's really become a 
huge portion of what government um, does. Um, and so, yeah, I think that yeah, the book shows sort of the, the, the laws, the ideas behind this and sort of the mechanics of how this all happened. Yeah, at a certain point in the book, you put it nicely, which is to say, um, through some of these mechanisms, uh, you know, a lot of our audience will have been in corporate America in the late 80s, and then especially in the early 90s, and I'm sure they observed the change. But it, I mean, basically, the, the evolution of this sort of law, and we should clarify, that most of this law, as you point out, is done through executive orders, and through the courts, and through the bureaucracy. Uh, the executive order and bureaucracy nexus is pretty close, uh, although not completely the same. But it, it really, there was not many laws passed besides this big inflection point in 91. Uh, and then a reauthorization, as you point out, in the George W. Bush administration. Um, and it, it, it basically makes the federal government, as you put it, the kind of omnibus HR department for what? Every Fortune 500 company, at least, or maybe even Fortune 1000 company. Um what uh, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit. I think people experience the explosion, especially in sexual harassment trainings and all this sort of thing. But what what effect has this had on sort of the sexes in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of a speculative question, but it's an, it's an interesting question. It's worth it's worth um, thinking about. So it took a while. I mean, you know, some people will know the story of how sex got into the civil rights act, which was sort of a joke. Um, somebody thought it would be so ridiculous. Uh, there was a, uh, a Southern uh, representative um, from Virginia named uh, Harold Smith and, or Howard Smith, I forget. But anyways, he, wa he wanted um, to kill the civil rights act. And he added the word sex because the idea was it would be so ridiculous to have a society that did not distinguish between men and women. Um, but then it actually ended up passing. Um, some people voted for it. They actually did want to get rid of sex discrimination. Uh, but then the government didn't do anything for a while because they just thought this was like sort of not the point of the Civil Rights Act, which was really about race and really about black people in the end. Um, and so they uh so like they so there was basically nothing done for like five years or six years or something. And then they start just by you know banning like ads in the newspaper, you couldn't have men's jobs and women's jobs. You couldn't do stuff like that, right? So it used to be the classified. They would say, here's a man's section, here's the woman's section. You couldn't do that anymore. Uh, they they uh, preempted state laws. Some state laws had like only men could be truck drivers. I don't know, whatever. They had these kind of laws. And so they got rid of that. So just basic sort of some basic stuff. And then, um, and then it wasn't even like uh, like even the most extreme sexual harassment, nobody thought like nobody thought for a few decades that that was considered against civil rights. Like even like a quid pro quo, there were cases where like a man would say, you know, you have to have sex with me or I won't hire you. And like at, at the first, the courts were like, you know, this is not this is bad, but it's not the it's not um, banned under the Civil Rights Act. It's not sexual discrimination. It's just a man behaving badly. Um, and then of course it expands. I mean, like like all these things do. Um, it eventually becomes uh, you have uh, workplace harassment. I mean, the workplace harassment. This is another just complete invention right it's like you discriminate but then it becomes you create an environment that sort of uh sucks for the person on account of their race or sex and they have these uh standards that, that the courts ratify which say uh that you know it has to be severe and pervasive um you know what does that mean severe or perva pervasive these are these are subjective um terms um eugene volock uh, ucla has done uh you know has written about how this this leads to zero tolerance policies because how could i mean how could you know what's pervasive if one employer makes a sexist joke that other employer makes a sexist joke okay it's pervasive you can't say you could only make a sexist joke if other people don't make sexist jokes or whatever and of course, these 
these laws are, you know, you have to realize every step of the way they're enforced by these people who are, who, who goes into the, who wants to become a EEOC, you know, field officer, uh, who becomes a civil rights lawyer. I mean, we know left-wing judges. Um, these are people who take the most expansive definition of uh, racism, sexism, uh, racial harassment. Civil rights law gives them this opening. And so I've, you know, I list in the book all these different things that were considered sexual uh, harassment, right? Like jokes, like not, you know, uh, not uh, disciplining an employee for like saying the wrong, for making a sexist joke, um, you know, putting pictures up of girls in bikinis. It really did become like, you know, sort of this all pervasive uh, mandate um, for social engineering. And businesses just want to you know, they just want to, they just want to make money. They just want to be, they just want to be left alone. And, and so you could look at over time. I mean, I don't know, like a lot of, like the number of people who are meeting at work, dating at work, I mean, has been going down over the decades, you know, who knows how connected that is to civil rights law, uh, but it's a very normal thing for people to date uh, people that they meet in the course of uh, work. It's sort of a health thing. I mean, in, in a free society, different institutions can have, of course, different norms. Some of them can forbid dating. Some of them can encourage it. Some of them can do, you know, whatever they, whatever they want. Um, but it really did, you know, the, the, the idea that sort of, uh, you know, if you watch like a movie or something like office, uh, office space or the office or something, this sort of cultural trope of like this, the, uh, the corporate environment being this kind of sterile place where nobody can say anything and everyone's neurotic and nervous and can't talk to other people all, all the time. Um, that's arguably the result of civil rights law. I, I, for, as far as I know, that's it's not like that in every country. Right. Yeah. As you put it, um, you talked about pervasive and severe uh, and then also I, I mentioned following your argument in the book that discrimination was never really defined in the Civil Rights Act, but I thought your sentence um, was good, what, which is vagueness wrapped in jargon is the great trick of civil rights law. Yeah. And so as you've been describing it, I mean, you have these companies are risk averse. Uh, they want to stay in business. They don't want to get tied up in in uh, federal courts uh, litigating this sort of stuff or endlessly paying settlements. So they just become... Uh, what sort of uh, school marmish about it and forbid everything or, or they have these bureaucratic procedures and all this paperwork where once they go to court, they have plausible deniability about doing something about it. Um, what um, uh, actually I want to get to the interesting fact, which, which I think a lot of people don't appreciate, but they'll of course get in your book because you'd say it, say it explicitly, but it also emerges from the the narrative, which is, they're sort of, you point out these three eras of civil rights expansion. And in many ways, we can lay a lot of this mess at the feet of Republican administrations, yeah. or at least Republican administrations and Congresses that weren't awake to the problem and didn't understand it or were loath to bring it up because of the political ide ideological environment. So you talk about the bipartisan cartel from 1964 to 1980, uh, Republicans divided from 81 to 09 and then conservative neglect from 2010 to the present. Yeah. Could you just um, walk us through that real quick? Yeah, I mean, so this book you can see, and then sort of there was an entire chapter aimed at conservatives, and you know they're going to have questions like, why wasn't anyone doing doing anything about this before? Were we asleep at the you know wheel? And I think knowing that history is actually useful because it tells you sort of what the political limitations were in the past, and like why a lot of those limitations actually don't hold anymore. Like you should actually be much more optimistic due to knowing this history. Um, so bipartisan cartel basically Johnson signed Civil Rights Act. Um, Nixon takes it. A 
step further, right? There's no pushback from Nixon. Nixon signs Title IX. Might not even known what Title IX was. I mean, it was really just sort of he's just he's he's off in China. I mean, he's doing he's doing other stuff. He doesn't he doesn't think about this. There's no conservative media uh, keeping up on it. You know, conservative judges versus liberal judges. There's there's no difference. They're all interpreting the law the same way. Um, Ford, there's nothing. Uh, Reagan comes in. Reagan is actually an ideologue. Reagan opposed the um, the original uh, Civil Rights Act, um, and he's actually he's good on this stuff. He wants to um, repeal Executive Order one one two four six. The there was a good supreme. There was a Supreme Court case that actually you know the supreme actually the, I should say the Supreme Court the court judges the conservative judges weren't bad. They were actually they were getting better uh, even even then. Um, they were uh, limiting the uh, enforcement power of the government in Title Nine and Title Six. They were saying okay if like you get federal money. Um, there was a, a decision that said if you get federal money, okay, you can force affirmative action onto like the uh, uh, the um, financial aid office of the university, but not the entire university. Um, and so there, there's a Supreme Court decision. It drives it drives uh, it, but it makes this sort of bipartisan sort of push from Congress. So Reagan is Reagan is the right of the conservative movement, right? But like conservatives within Congress are divided. The majority, especially in the Senate, um, are with the liberals on the civil rights issue. And so they and so they passed something called the Civil Rights Restoration Act, which gave us this disastrous social engineering at universities. Reagan vetoes it. I mean, he he, he goes that far. Uh, they override his veto, right? Um, and so Reagan does Reagan Reagan does a lot. It was only one of a handful of vetoes um, across his entire uh, presidency. Um, and so you have this uh, period where Republicans are divided. Um, George H. W. Bush. I mean, the, he vetoes the first Civil Rights Act of 1990. Uh, it gets clobbered in the midterms, comes back and and basically surrenders. Um, and they pump a lot of things to the courts and they, and they just give up, right? So, I mean, the, the fact that he's vetoing it, that's, that shows just different from the Nixon, uh, Nixon era. Um, yeah. And so conservatives are just getting more conservative down the line. Republicans are getting more conservative down the line. Um, and so by... Uh, um, and then so by like, I think this process is basically done by about about the time of the Tea Party. Um, there aren't really pro-civil rights um, conservatives anymore. Even during the Bush administration, um, you know, they're trying to pass uh, protection for LGBT. They can never get any Republicans to vote for it. You know, a few, a handful will do it, but but they won't do it. So conservatives by the 2000s are no longer going to go along with any kind of expansion of civil rights law. Um, but they by 2009 2010 they've and like even in the trump era they've by this time they've forgotten this history they don't know that this stuff is even in the law these stuff this these things that were big stories during the nixon administration uh big stories during ronald reagan the civil rights act battles of george hw bush these were all covered in the news conservatives by 2010 2015 they don't they don't even know this stuff existed this stuff has become so baked into the law every institution is living according to these uh uh to these ideas and so the optimistic uh case here is that like look the republicans are a lot more right wing you you're, you don't have to convince them that like affirmative action is a problem or wokeness is a problem or like institutions should be colorblind that used to be uh controversial um among republicans you know 20 or 25 years ago um that's that's really not anymore um and there you know there's a conservative media ecosystem um you know people say well they're afraid of uh the leftist media that might have been more true i think they're more afraid of the right wing media now i mean it's developed and it has its own uh, independent pressures and they're usually at least as afraid of it as they are of the mainstream media depending on the politician um and so the, the you know the tie and then you have just the concerns sort of the cultural craziness 
um, of the way that things have gone in the last five to 10 years. Uh, so I argue that like knowing this history and knowing what sort of stopped people from stopping the stuff in the past tells us that actually it's a good time to be optimistic. When Rufo, um, you know, Rufo went on uh, Fox News, we went on Tucker in like the last months of the Trump presidency and said uh, bad critical race theory. And Trump just sees it. I'm like, you know, Rufo could have told him get rid of affirmative, affirmative action. He could have told him like, I, you know, I was like, I was like amazing. Like this could happen just like so quickly. But, you know, even Rufo, I mean, that, he's been doing great work, but it just came like too late in the Trump presidency. Um, and so I think due to the work of Rufo, due to this book, due to a lot of other people talking about this, um, I think the next Republican administration, whoever that is and whenever that will be, um, you know, they're, they're, they'll at least know what to do and whether they act on it, we'll see. Yeah. I am. Um, this theme of culture and politics or culture and law comes up frequently on the right. Um, I, I think I think you did quote Andrew Breitbart in your book, but he famously said that politics is downstream from culture. We've always been skeptical of that claim at the Claremont Institute, uh, good students of history that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you point out, I think rightly, that on this question of civil rights is a good example of culture and law really being intertwined and being feedback, really a feedback loop. So uh, we had some questions ahead of the the session um, asking about the power of ideas in this argument. And, you know, is this culturally Marxist in its roots? Um, what sort of cultural currents have led to this? Um, what, what do you say to that argument? Or how, how should we understand this question of civil rights within that framework? Yeah, I mean the cultural Marxism thing. You know, these kind of uh, these kind of uh, uh, questions and sort of theories about ideas affecting people. I, I just find them as a social scientist, they're just hard to prove. I mean, sometimes you'll hear you'll see people say, "Oh, uh, wokeness is Protestantism, or it's Catholicism, or it's Gnosticism, or it's this or that." And I'm like, you know, okay, you could tell a story. I don't know how you prove it. I don't know how you sort of test it, right? Um, there could be something to these sort of big idea um, historical forces. Forces. Um, I don't think that they're obviously unimportant, um, but it's just really, really um, hard to disentangle. I think what I think, as you said, right, it is a it is clearly a feedback loop. Laws matter. I mean, you could see you could trace it. Culture matters, of course. Um, and really, I mean, you should see them as sort of complementary because civil rights law, I say, is a is a kind of a pipeline. You have these ideas in the academy. You have these ideas um, from uh, activists, from just you know crazy people, HR, like entrepreneurs, like you know this woman Rabin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi. I mean, they're entrepreneurs. They're out there sort of doing uh, in the world of ideas. Uh, but then the civil rights law is sort of the uh, is the pipeline where they get into corporate America. They get it. Maybe they get there anyway. I mean, but it makes it easier. It, made, it creates every incentive. Um, um, for people in corporate America, for universities, um, to start listening to people like that, because the federal government tells you you have to be concerned about race, race and sex. It builds up these HR departments, um, and so yeah, I mean, what you know, what we are, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we, if, if I think everyone should, you know, I, I'm not against cultural explanations or people trying to change the culture, argue with people and, and so forth. I think that's, that's good. Um, I think it, people have been doing that. Breitbart, obvi- uh, you know, obviously famously uh, did that and believed in that. And there's people out there making conservative documentaries and producing content and, and so forth. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was the, I, the political sort of the, the raw power kind of like how this happened and the mechanics, like that story of like how it happened and how it can be changed. I, I think it's been neglected. You mentioned uh, uh, call 
Caldwell's book. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he got people thinking about civil rights law. Yeah. Um, there wasn't as much detail about exactly what executive orders or exactly what the government did or exactly um, how it worked. Uh, so I just didn't think there were there had been enough thinking in that area. Um, and that's, you know, that's hopefully the contribution of the book. Yeah. And is it, do you think it's fair to think of corporate America along a spectrum? I mean, a lot of them, of course, just toe the line because they're risk averse, as we mentioned. So at one, at one end, you might have Disney these days where you have leadership and middle management committed to the ideological project of wokeness. And then also they've been in that habit uh, for reasons of, of corporate laws and regulations for a long time. And then you have you know, say AT&T, it's a case I'm somewhat familiar with. I think they've stepped back a little bit from their social activism because they had a divided constituency and their customers on BLM funding and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, is that a good way to think about it? The the ones that toe the line because they think they have to and they don't want to get sued. And then you also have at least concentrated maybe in the C-suites and middle management and pushed from the bottom by, you know, 28-year-old HR people. Yeah driving it a little more aggressively. Yeah, the Disney one is interesting. I mean, I was recently reading about how sort of Disney, you know, the people who play the characters in the uh, uh, in the theme park, they often tend to be like uh, homosexuals. Like those are the kind of people who sort of aspire to these jobs. So I just think a lot of these sort of creative professions, they're just going to draw a certain kind of person. And so that's probably the hardest to, I guess it hasn't always been like this, but I don't know why in 2020, you know, 2024, um, it seems like if you're going to have something like Disney, it's just going to be taken over by people uh, who are who are leftists. That, that I think is just sort of, yeah, something that it's it's going to be hard to change. I mean, just uh, this, these ideas have sort of conquered the the creative arts. Um, right. But then you're but then you're right. I mean, I mean, this is you know you're right that like there are corporations that are going to be you know that are going to be different. I mean, you could see it with sort of the uh, uh, stuff like you know COVID restrictions. Like Trader Joe's was like the first one. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a conservative company. It, it's funny because they were the first ones during like the Great Awakening. Um, I remember uh, to refuse they if somebody wanted to change them they wanted to, somebody wanted to change the name because it was uh insensitive to hispanics or something or one of their dishes and they said no yeah. and then they were the first ones to get rid of the mask mandates and it's like okay whoever's running trader joe's they're they're obviously a little bit more right-leaning you could tell from from these issues and so yeah there's everything sort of uh in between um you're right and a lot of big corporations are going to be divided they're going to be where all different kinds of people come together i mean the idea that can uh that business is like everyone white collar everyone professional is like necessarily a liberal it's maybe a little bit truer now than like it maybe since like 2016 2017 it's become truer but you know as recently as Mitt Romney I mean 60 percent of white college graduates were voting Republican um and that includes like professors and stuff like people in business probably even more so there's been even studies recently of like uh uh corporate boards I mean the Republicans are like the majority are very well represented um and so I don't think like you can believe that this is just uh, like the majority of this stuff is um is genuine belief. Um, some of it is, and some places like Disney are probably going to even hurt their own financial interests just because, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they have, they have their ideas and they have their aesthetic preferences. Uh, but yeah, I think business, I mean, this is what like, so like in the last, since Elon Musk just bought Twitter, not that long ago, now you see all these stories about suddenly like the boycotts work, right? Like target, you know, uh, they, you know, these, uh, I, I didn't even say we're in February 13th. I, I barely see any black history month at all. I mean, I've always said that business, it was going to be sort of, of uh, 
like easy compared to a lot of other things. Target is going to be somewhat easy um, because they just want to make money, right? The university is going to be hard. So like SFFA, B Harvard comes down and like they're they're the next day, they're scheming about how to uh, how to get around it, right? So the university right. is always going to be like the toughest nut to crack. Uh, but people are worried about business. And I, you know, I want to tell people, you know, be up, be, be more optimistic about business. I mean, they're responsible. They, they respond to market forces. They're not the people who go, who um, decided to become activists as part of their life, like a, uh, uh, like a lot of people in academia did. Um, and so here I think, yeah, a lot could be done. Yeah. Um, now I just want to turn to some of your solutions and then we can uh, just open up for questions. Mm -hmm. For those who haven't been on this before, which is probably few of you, uh, just drop your question into Q&A. We don't raise hands or do audio or video just for time reasons and, and uh, speechifying reasons, but I'll try to get it to as many of these questions as I can. Um, so yeah, I'll just turn to your solutions, um, the brass tacks, as it were. It's a pretty good guide for a future administration. Um, so let's go through the low-hanging fruit first. Uh, and you divide this into the executive branch, the judiciary, and red states. Um, let's just walk through that. I mean, you've mentioned a bunch of times the executive order 11246. Um, so you could you could immediately basically ban affirmative action in federal contracting uh, and across the federal workplace. Um, yeah. what, are, what are some other things that need to happen, including with the judiciary? And, and then we can turn to red states. You know, yeah, but we need to really, really need to revisit the uh, the disparate impact doctrine of Griggs. It, it's not, it, you know, affirmative action. It's interesting. People focus so much on universities, and it's good that we got rid of affirmative action in universities. Uh, but it's all, but it's, uh, it's almost, um, you know, sort of um, we pay too much attention relative to everything else because most people, most of the time, are not on universities, and not a lot of the corporate America yeah. stuff. Um, I think, you know, a lot of conservative activists maybe care a lot about universities because they're intellectuals or whatever, or they've been to college. Um, but, you know, the business, the business world is very important and there's low hanging fruit there. I mean, the disparate impact doctrine is horrible law. Um, you know, I think it violates the 14th Amendment. Uh, Gail Harriott uh, wrote, about, uh, wrote about this. Um, I think that you could do something, the judiciary needs to do something there. Um, the... Uh, um, and then the harassment law, you know, there's never really been a First Amendment challenge. So the First Amendment has been sort of expanding in every area of law. A lot of people listening to this will know about sort of pornography, you know, the First Amendment became more expansive. But then also you think of something like Citizens United, where, uh, you know, they, there was restri uh, restrictions on sort of campaign finance because money is speech. And so we're seeing sort of the First Amendment has been sort of expanding in these different in, in these different ways. Um, but, it, but it's still sort of this anomaly where where like uh, government basically has these laws about how uh, private institutions are to behave and like what you can you know what you could say and what you can't. If it was like more direct, it would be easier to overturn. If they were just like, okay, you have to you know uh, uh, you know if the government was just saying you have to you know not misgender people or something. But it's more subtle than that. It's you know you can't create a hostile environment. This is the trick. Um, how they go after free speech. Um, they call free speech uh, action. So it's not you know it's it's creating an environment. It's harassment. Um, but at, at root at the root it's speech. Um, and so we're not even at the point actually for that. It's low hanging fruit and like a judge could rule this way. Um, but like conservatives have not sort of started thinking about sort of the lawfare act uh, uh, part of this. Like they need like um, they need trial lawyers and they need public interest firms and they need law professors writing up these papers and, you know, going through the mechanics of uh, making an intellectual case for it. And I think, you know, a lot of conservative judges will be receptive 
um, to that. Um, you see, you know, you've seen some stuff too on like uh, government uh, contracting set asides. We've recently seen, uh, uh, I think it was the uh, was it the was it the uh, it's one one of the circuits. Uh, they they in Michigan they had a they had a decision. I think that they got they um, they got rid of it. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, so there there is stuff happening now that the judiciary um, is a lot more conservative um, than it used to be. Um, red states could also, you know, they could they could sort of put conditions on, you know, they could use the contracting um, uh, provisions. Uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Mitchell uh, suggested to me, and I included in his book, his idea um, that they basically, this is how you create standing for affirmative action at the federal level. Um, you, you give a state law, you have the states basically ban affirmative action and the federal government requires it. And then, you know, you have standing because you're the corporation and you're sort of stuck between these two places and you need to sort of punt this thing to the court. The executive order, 11246, I mean, there's no statutory justification. It's really sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and so, yeah, the, you know, these are the basic things you can do. I think the free speech one is probably the one that's been most neglected and that we need to work on. Yeah. And you point out that uh, red states can also, and they've started um, Texas and Florida. Yeah. Uh, and I know Indiana is working on something, of, of, especially in higher education in their state schools, basically banning or abolishing their DEI programs and, and just eliminating whole cloth, a lot of this HR infrastructure yeah. in ed education. Um, and then the more difficult projects, as you point out, um, repealing or modifying the 91 Civil Rights Act, which, you know, I this I, I kind of knew this intuitively, but you lay it out nicely. The problem with the 91 Civil Rights Act, and you're following, you mentioned Gail Harriet, who's written a lot about this from University of San Diego Law School, uh, you know, the punitive damages and then the award structure where, <clears throat> you know, plaintiff's attorneys can collect fees. And it, yeah. so it's become a, a whole a whole cottage industry and really a racket. And it's fueled uh, not only the sort of NGO marketplace for this, but public interest law firms on the left. Yeah. And it's become quite lucrative for a certain class of lawyer. So you could really cut off at the knees a lot of that project. Yeah. Um, but you'd need congressional action, as you point yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, yeah, but that was that, that part actually was uh, not the 1991 law. That was, there was Civil Rights uh, Attorneys Fees Awards Act in the 1970s. And then the Supreme Court ruled that it only applied to the plaintiffs. It doesn't say oh, that right. law, but then they said it only applies to the plaintiffs. I mean, that is such a, that, you know, that's such a corruption of the law. So, yeah, you could, re I mean, you could potentially revisit that decision if, if that's possible. Uh, Gail points out one thing about the punitive damages. Uh, to, she pointed out to me that uh, uh, it's not, not indexed for inflation so if you wait long enough i mean it's it's going to be less and less and so it's like it's like three hundred thousand per whatever for corporation for the biggest corporation so yeah that's becoming less of a thing over time something cases i guess you just don't have to do anything and this stuff won't matter right yeah so if if right if democrats try to introduce a cpi inflator for that yes, you definitely don't vote for that. Yes. <laughs> That's very technical. Yeah, CPI later for punitive debt. Yeah, you have to be going to have a very smart movement to know to oppose that. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to some questions. I'll just recommend everyone. If you haven't picked up Richard's book, I recommend it. It's, you know, it's pretty concise and very practically minded, but very thorough. So um, from beginning to end, it's a very useful book if you want to understand it and understand how we got here. Um so John asks, can we discuss either either of us invidious discrimination under color of authority by government entities of a protected class versus private discrimination in the marketplace or workplace? Um, hold on, his I dropped his question there. Um, and the and the various analyses impact analyses required by conservatives uh, and public policy implication for future administrations. Yeah, how do we separate this? 
the sort of government private question or how do you think about it yeah i mean or is it really a distinction without a difference in a lot of instances yeah i mean it's you know you have yeah i think maybe he might be thinking about these uh, recent cases about government censorship and first amendment um yeah i mean i think judges have to serve and judges you know they 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 do this all the time i mean when they uh you know when they sort of believe in the cause so the first amendment it's pretty i mean it's pretty broad and even though the liberals went crazy about this uh these recent rulings about social media um it's it's very normal and sort of first amendment jurisprudence to say you know you can't you can't pressure a private institution or you can't um, make things difficult for someone who's uh, um, who spe- who's uh, exercising their free speech rights. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but a lot of these things are actually much more direct than that. You don't even have to go that uh, far. Um, like the affirmative action executive orders, a lot of these mandates come from above. A lot of these things are... Um, you know, a lot of these uh, these things are you know these like settlements, like the EEOC are like these uh, civil rights lawsuits, and they end up with the government, uh, the government, sometimes the judici- judiciary or the uh, the federal bureaucracy, telling them corporations sort of what practices they have to adopt. So yeah, I mean, it so much depends on, you know, this is one of those things where it's like it's that distinction between private and public. It's gonna. Um, a, a, cons- a conservative judge who doesn't like civil rights lawsuits that's got too far is gonna have a broad sort of interpretation of what the government's doing, right? If you have a bunch of liberal judges, you know, any ruling you have, they're going to find it, you know, very, they're going to read it as narrow um, as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is one of these things where uh, if you if you get the right judges and you convince people this is important, it, it'll take care of itself. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe you sort of addressed this already, but Richard asks, well, what about annual corporate shareholder voting? where woke companies like Apple recommend voting against woke proposals like climate change monitoring, LGBTQ policies, et cetera. Why is there this dichotomy? Um, so uh, what is the dichotomy exactly, you said? I guess, I mean, we've sort of addressed it. I mean, the. Um, I guess to flesh this question out, why is there the dichotomy between, you know, they're pushing all this sort of, all these processes because it's mandated under federal law uh, and yet they encourage shareholders to vote against more damaging stuff. I guess that just proves your point that they're in the business of making yeah. money and keeping yeah. costs. Down. I, I actually, I, yeah, I actually didn't. I actually didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know Apple often votes against these kind of crazy ESG. That's yeah, that helps my case. That's the, that's very sort of optimistic that even Apple, yeah. you know, they they don't let things get too far. They're still businessmen at heart. Yeah. Uh, Anonymous asks if we could talk about the recent New York Schools Award, where a test was deemed to be racist, and teachers who failed to test some of them five times were awarded you know high damages how do we stop this sort of thing yeah i mean this is this is playing stop it outside of new york yeah yeah i mean this is playing title this is playing title seven i mean this was amazing they gave these people back pay they gave them for like whatever 20 years or whatever 30 years they gave them pension they gave them pensions they gave them retirement benefits for these jobs that they never worked i mean it's really um it's really incredible no one on earth thought that this was what the Civil Rights Act um, was doing. Um, You know, I I think that, yeah, I mean, once you get, I mean, it's all a disparate impact case. Um, And so like, once it's all the legal doctrine of disparate impact. So you get rid of that. I mean, theoretically would like, liberal judges find another way to do it i don't think so like this, new york city fought this i mean new york they, they don't want to bankrupt themselves paying pensions to these people who never uh worked for them um so yeah i think this is one of those things that really really does require disparate impact doctrine you're not getting something this crazy uh any other way yeah um 
Tim, Tim asks, it's really, well, kind of a comment, but it's a question really. Uh, could, and actually you address this at least um, by, by implication in your book. He asks, could we have a surge of legal academic work defining the First Amendment similar to the one we had in the 90s for the Second Amendment? And the part of your conservative neglect part of the narrative about Republicans is that, look, they, they in areas where they really uh, care about things in the yeah. last decades, like abortion and the Second Amendment, uh, they've pushed back quite effectively. So I don't see why that couldn't be the case with the First Amendment and speech and uh, civil rights laws. Yeah, I mean the Second Amendment is also a good point. That this was this was sort of radical at the time that you would uh, you know get rid of these um, these gun laws. I mean it was sort of a consensus that you don't do that. That states states didn't have open carry. I mean this was not a normal thing, and now it's it's basically almost everywhere. Um, and so you're absolutely right. Um, also the uh, um, yeah I, I mentioned like Citizens United. I mean it's another thing where like this idea that corporate you know corporations have free speech rights that was also so, so, uh, something radical. People had to sort of work on that uh, too. Um, so. So yeah, if you're a you know a legal prof a law professor or somebody somebody who works in uh, you know the think tank world, I mean I think that's one of the most promising areas to work on. Just bring the First Amendment into uh, civil rights law. Yeah, uh, Ken asks a question and has some comments because he has some experience. So he Ken worked at um, Ken and Masugi worked at uh, Madison College within the MSU system for a while under an old Claremont friend, Bill Allen, who's a you know black conservative academic. And, you know, MSU wanted to get more black students. So they went to the Catholic high schools in inner city Detroit and recruited the cream of the crop. And, you know, MSU is not that hard to get into. So uh, it resulted in Ken's experience of a lot of his top students were the highly recruited black students and the white students were on average mediocre by comparison. He asked, do you see a problem with this kind of affirmative action, uh, if, if we can even call it that? You know, I am a libertarian on freedom of association uh, questions. I mean, if you want to have an all black or, you know, great black students and mediocre white students or any, anything in between, I, uh, I, I don't care. Um, uh, so, no, I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, the, the problem with sort of civil rights law uh, as it exists, though, is like, you know, you could discriminate openly in favor of blacks, maybe not so much under SFFA, but, you know, that's the way traditionally it's uh, it's been. Um, at the same time, like if, you know, uh, you know, if, if a black person complains that they're slightly uncomfortable, well, then that's a that's a huge, you know, lawsuit potentially. It's just sort of kind of like asymmetry. As long as you have that asymmetry, I think you have to apply the laws uh, equally. As long, you know, if you, if you have like, oh, I, I believe in freedom of association, so I'm not going to worry about anti-white discrimination. Uh, the problem is anti-black discrimination is still illegal, um, and so you're going to uh, uh, and so you're going to get corporations overcorrecting, and they're going to try to you know they're going to obviously give blacks uh, benefits and not that they don't give to whites. Um, I, my ideal world, I mean, people could people could do uh, uh, whatever they want. Yeah, and it's complicated M MSU, of course, because it's a, a state school. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you wrote the book before the affirmative action Harvard case and North Carolina case, SF, S, uh, FFA, as you mentioned, Richard. But I mean, Gorsuch's concurrence seems to me to be pretty uh, important in the sense that, I mean, he basically says what you argued in the book, which is one avenue for fixing a lot of this would be to say that, uh, you know, Title VI, as it's currently applied, violates the Equal Protection Act and that you really have to that affirmative action and all sorts of race-based programs in the federal government and the state level is unconstitutional. 
Yeah, Gorsuch, I mean, the Gorsuch's concurrence is very interesting because it's really, I mean, it's really absolutist. I mean, it really is. He says, yeah. don't even have this uh, balancing test. It's all it says is don't discriminate based on race. I don't care about, you know, a compelling state interest or narrowly tailored or any of this other stuff that's become part of the law. He's saying get rid of it all. So you have three, uh, I think you have three justices who are just absolutist anti any kind of uh, uh, Gorsuch, uh, Thomas, and uh, yeah. Alito. Um, and then the other th- the other uh, three conservatives don't particularly like affirmative action either, right? Roberts wrote the uh, Roberts wrote the decision. Um, and so yeah, um, yeah, I think that there is, you know, there's, there's, this is just sort of my, yeah, this proves my thesis that, um, you know, you're pushing out an open door once you bring these arguments again. This doesn't divide conservatives. Are you a libertarian? Are you a nationalist? I mean, are you anything like anything with on the sort of right spectrum? You're against affirmative action, you're against government social engineering. Um, and so this isn't yeah. something that should be hard. Yeah, it's it's uh, the sweet spot. Uh, I mean, you talk about salience and and uh, that is how how much the issue is on people's radar and how it resonates and then polarization. But this seems to me to be both good policy and good politics. So I yeah. I, I'm with Democrats, you. I'm optimistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even the Democrats aren't don't don't fight as hard because. First of all, first of all, some of them like some elite liberals don't also don't like affirmative action or have questions about it, even though they don't talk about it publicly. But they also are smart and they know um, they know that public opinion is really against them on this. I mean, you saw the you probably might have seen the polling on SFFA v. Harvard. I mean, you don't get 65 percent of support of a Supreme Court decision on these controversial issues. It's very, very rare. Maybe uh, maybe Dobbs in the other direction. But like this is a very this is something this is a Supreme Court decision. Uh, conservative victory that is more popular than just about, you know, any other uh, high profile Supreme Court uh, conservative victory. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're limited. If this is salient, I mean, it, it's good for Republicans. Yeah. Max, who says he's attending from Canada, he says the narrative is all about how this happened in the U.S., but the exact same stuff is going on here. That is Canada. And I'm not aware that it's being done through legislation or executive action, which makes me think that it's cultural. Do we have a comment? I'll just say one thing, which is um, this might be the case, Max, where a lot of this civil rights law, quote unquote, civil rights law, uh, post 60s in the Anglosphere start all started in America. And so I think a lot of the Anglosphere took its uh, cues from America. So it might be. And I, you know, we'd, we'd have to look into it. Maybe uh, Richard knows more about Canada than I do on this question. But I suspect it's it's legal and administrative and bureaucratic policy in the U.S. driving uh, similar legislation or trends, legislative trends in maybe a place like the U.K., Canada, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the kind, of, the kind of thing, the idea that they don't have sort of these legal restrictions. I mean, who was who was going after Jordan Peterson then for for misgendering uh, uh, students? I, I, there does seem to be a right. sort of a human rights. It seems in many cases, you know, they have like not a First Amendment. They have uh, legal restrictions on what you could say. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. There's many uh, uh, Western countries now that don't have some kind of wokeness embedded in law. It looks different in other countries. So like they're not all obsessed with standardized tests. We're obsessed with standardized tests for some reason. And um, that's, you know, very specific to ours. They're not, you know, they they uh, uh, they don't have like often government set aside contracts. You know, there's like different kinds of things that you could trace to law. But no, I mean, I don't I don't question the there's something cultural going on here, too. Um, that's unquestionably important. You know, the law is sort of how it gets channeled in different countries. Yeah. Uh, Paul asked, I don't know if you remember, Richard. I actually don't. But I mean, Amy Wax reviewed your book, I think, for CRB. 
Do, no, it was, uh, it was American conservative. Remember, American conservative. Yeah. Do you remember any of her critiques and do you want to respond at all? If, if not, that's fine. I was just curious. Um, yeah. If you guys uh, want to go um, listen to my, actually I have a, uh, it, it's probably just easier to tell people Google my name, Amy Wax's name. We did an entire podcast on it and we have a transcript. And so you can either listen to it or read it. So we go into this in depth. Yeah. Good. Um, <clears throat> so another anonymous question, sort of practical one in the workplace. I don't know if we can let's respond to effectively, but we'll see. Is there something individuals can do as managers in private companies? My HR department and our training sessions have some pretty questionable things, but everyone remembers James Damore and Google. Uh, should we just keep our heads down until the legal and, and policy work gets further along or sh is there something we can do now? Uh, link it to Rufo. I mean, that seems to, that seems to work. I mean, uh, you bring some attention to it anonymously. If, if you're, if you feel safe uh, doing that, you as one person and cog in the machine, um, uh, that's probably, that seems to me like probably the best thing you could do. I, I, I don't know if there's, you know, it's worth risking, <laughs> risking your career if uh, uh, for, uh, you know, right. If for, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Kevin brings up this, hot issue of airline pilots and just says mm -hmm. if we hire for diversity eventually we're gonna people are gonna start dying i think richard and i both agree uh if any if meritocracy should apply anywhere i i want it to apply to my pilots flying my planes um and i i think it's an open question you know um united claims i forget their target date but that they want 50 percent of their i don't know if it's their pilots but maybe all of their employees uh, to be yeah. persons of color or or women by whenever it is 2030. Yeah. I, I suspect they're going to run into some just natural ceilings here. And uh, what you probably will see is if it's just employees, you'll see a lot more diversity and sort of, you know, behind the desk staff. But I, yeah. I think <laughs> most airline executives are smart enough to know that um, they, even though they're making noises about it, they uh, they, yeah. they should be careful about lowering. Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, notifications too much. Yeah, I mean, there's a market incentive, obviously, not to have your planes crash, uh, fall out of the sky. I mean, corporations are, are smarter than this. I mean, some people think that they're just zombies; they're just all gonna start killing all their crews and, and passengers. It usually doesn't work like that. I mean, usually they're smart enough to know, <laughs> okay, we'll hire the person, we'll they, you know, we'll put them in a back office, or they won't meet their goals. You know, who's gonna remember that goal in 2030 uh, or whatever? So yeah, this stuff has problems, but you know, I, right. I don't, I don't feel unsafe getting on a flight uh, as of now. Yeah, I mean. I what I think the the last major U.S. plane crash I think was in it was maybe in twenty maybe twenty ten or twenty eleven that one in New York or something. So it, anyway, it's statistically it's still yeah. the safest way to travel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, um, let's see. What uh, I'll ask the simple question, another anonymous one. Um, what maybe the, the answer is obvious, but what effect will the 24, 24 election have on all this either way? Um, it's going to be very important. Everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to matter. Yeah. I mean, you see how much of this stuff is bureaucracy and judges. It's not going to be the headlines if Trump gets into office or Biden gets into office. But everything that I've been talking about that's been behind the scenes, the things you might not even, you know, read about or they might escape your attention. Um, it's personnel. It's going to be policy on these issues. Yeah. How does the reparations issue fit into all this? Robert wants to know. 
Yeah, the reparations issue is interesting. I mean, I just saw California, the Gavin Newsom had like a commission, and then they decided it's too expensive, we're going to do something else instead. Yeah, I mean, the, the reparations thing is sort of like the uh, uh, the market, uh, you know, the the sort of the market pressures making the planes not not crash out of the sky. I mean, it, it's sort of a it's it, it's it's like too unrealistic. It's too expensive. Um, so it's sort of a good sort of way to virtue signal for a lot of politicians. There'll be a lot of commissions on it. You know, I, I doubt we'll see, uh, uh, you know, that would be actually cleaner. I mean, it's part of a genius of civil rights laws. Like it's vague. It goes on forever. You never are free. You never absolved of your sin and sort of reparations, you know, it's like one and done. And that's just sort of not the style. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard some conservatives argue, okay, well, maybe we'll take the reparations bait and have one time huge payment, but then we have to agree we're done with yeah, modern exactly. civil rights laws. It's been conducted. Right. I mean, I'd like to see a Republican senator or congressman. We never get it. Yeah, I'd like to see them introduce a bill though, just to kind of troll, just put that in there. Yeah, where, you know, race preferences are gone forever. Here's the here's the money co-sponsored with Cory Bush or something. That could that could be fun. Yeah, let's uh, maybe go out with this. Just Amanda wanted a little bit more. Um, she asks, could we say a bit more or you say a bit more, Richard, about where you'd place really place the blame for wokeness uh, or or your assessment of the Nixon administration's role in all of this? I mean, is it is it is it really the Nixon administration's fault more than any other? I guess I combine the two questions. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think if you just had to blame like one politician. I, not even Nixon, but the Nixon administration. Actually, George Schultz in the Labor uh, Department um, was was a was a bad one. Um, if you want, like one government figure. Um, uh, yeah, it was, but it, it's even hard to blame the Nixon administration because it was like the times were crazy. I mean, it wasn't like the Nixon administration didn't control the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court was doing crazy stuff on busing. I just think the country went mad from like, you know, 64 to like 70, you know, 75 or something like that. Um, and just were willing to try anything on race and like, just thought that there was going to be, you know, they were going to have this uh, racial utopia right around the corner. Um, and um, it didn't work out like that. So it's even hard to place the blame on one person, just a lot of this stuff was established at a time that just you know there was a lot of crazy ideas floating out there yeah well good well we can end just a couple minutes early uh again i encourage everyone to buy richard's book the origins of woke uh it's uh it's a great primer on the issue and is is very very practically minded and i hope your concluding chapters richard will be a, a sort of guidebook um Maybe you should even write up a white paper on it for a future administration. Uh, it shouldn't take you that long. Most of it's there. So uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks yeah, for all your work. Sure. And I encourage people to follow Richard. And uh, um, uh, thanks for coming to this virtual briefing. And remember, I would not be my, doing my duty if I didn't say, if you don't support the Claremont Institute, please do. And uh, thank you as always for joining us. So everyone have a good evening. Thanks, Ryan. Take care.